0: I think you need to find your sort of personal passion within the industry and then everything will become easier. So when you go and have a discussion with capital or your banks or whoever it is around something that you can obviously be seen to be sort of deeply engaged and passionate about, it just makes everything so much easier.
1: You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 69 of the show. Thanks for joining me. How are you doing? Staying safe, I trust. I'm well. Been enjoying a bit more social freedom as we slowly ease up the COVID lockdown across Australia. I've also been very busy for the past few weeks. Lots going on with my projects. We started demolition on one of them, which is exciting. I posted a short video on the show's Insta and Facebook pages if you want to check out how it's going. After years of battling away, it's been nice to see some action on site and start seeing the dream become a reality. Still, a bit of work to do to get the builder on site for the initial site works, so I've been busy sorting out some loose ends to ensure we don't have any delays. It'll be interesting to see what happens with the property market over the next 6 to 12 months with lots of speculation around large stimulus measures for the industry which will be exciting if some of those initiatives get off the ground. If you have been using this time to ponder your future and reflect on what you'd love to be doing and realised you want to get into property developing, don't forget we have the mentoring program to help you get started into a career of safe and profitable developing. If you'd like to find out more then email me, justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com for further info. Okay, let's get on to today's guest, Chris Staff. Chris is pursuing a large-scale built-to-rent slash sell model, and he has an interesting story to share about how he is going about it. There's been a lot of talk about built-to-rent in Australia, so I was very interested to hear how Chris was approaching the challenge. During this conversation, we cover how Chris started out as an engineer and then morphed into a property developer how he was looking for a different outcome with his projects and turned to helping people buy their homes through an alternative approach. We also talk about the different challenges that these types of projects present. Keep an ear out for how the financial feasibility and funding differs from a more traditional built-to-sell project. I think you'll enjoy this discussion and I started off by asking Chris what food he would eat until he was sick.
0: Um, for me, I've got a pretty simple palette. It would be eggs in some format. (laughs) That's that's about as extravagant as I get, I think. uh,
1: With some sort of sauce or an omelette Uh, or just plain boiled eggs?
0: Just some fried eggs with sriracha sauce on toast would be be good for me. There's a um, bit of
1: spice and flavour there.
0: Yeah, so... I eat so much pasta with butter and cheese with my five-year-old and and, uh, and one-year-old that, um, you know, the, the sort of simple things that seem to be the way of our household. So.
1: Oh, yes. It's funny when you've got kids and you go back to eating quite simple food and as they get older, you can start mixing it up a little bit more.
0: Yeah. Well, Poppy, our five-year-old, picks dinner on Sunday nights for family dinner and um, I could pretty safely go to the supermarket on every occasion and... Buy a packet of pasta and some butter and cheese and know that that's what she'd be picking for dinner on the night that she gets to pick dinner. So uh, there's not too much variety, but you know, yeah.
1: <laughs> that's okay. I come from the school of thought that says butter and cheese and anything usually makes it all pretty good. To say that. All right, Chris, yeah. we're here today to talk about developing, yeah. and you've got an interesting story to tell around a uh, sort of built-to-rent to model, but can you give us a bit of a background about how you got into developing the projects you've done or those sort of basics?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so, I guess by training, um, civil structural engineer, um, also have a degree in geology or a degree in science with a major in geology. Um, so, I did that at Melbourne Uni um, after growing up on Phillip Island and going to high school down there. Um, And then out of that, got into – I sort of did some consulting engineering for a little while and um, sort of wasn't so fond of the desk life Um, and got into the sort of project management side of civil and structural engineering and ended up um, sort of transitioning out of that and just on a a, a bit of chance really – Took the opportunity to take up a position at Melbourne Docklands Authority at the time. So uh, and that was in the very early days of Docklands when our office was in AFL House, which is just on the, the sort of water side of Marvel Stadium there, um, and there really wasn't much else down there at the time when when I started um, in the sort of mid two thousands. And we uh, that was a very interesting time. So there was there was a lot of sort of big transactions uh, happening down there and as the sort of government's agency responsible for the delivery of the country's largest urban renewal project at the time, um, we got um, a lot of young, a lot of contact as quite young operators, young professionals with the sort of heavy hitters in the development industry. So, you know, we were working with the sort of bosses of Lend-Lease and Mervac and Mab Corporation and late and Leighton Properties at the time and, and you sort of name it. They were all down there vying for a their sort of slice of Docklands, um, and that was very rare time and, and very sort of special time for me to sort of observe um, sort of what development was really about, and particularly the sort of the largest sort of master plan precincts and gave me a very deep network for someone in their, their sort of mid-20s to um sort of i guess leverage in the future um and sort of rare contact for someone at my age to have um, that sort of engagement with such senior industry leaders um and through that i forged a a sort of friendship with um ashley williams who was the project director for new key which was one of the projects down there um which has been developed by uh, michael andrew buxton uh by mab and we um and sort of formed a good relationship. And initially the relationship was one where we were sort of on opposite sides of the table. I was responsible for the management of his precinct and and our contract with Mab, um, and and he was obviously sitting on the developer side of that relationship. And, you know, it was sort of, you know, full of sort of positive engagement and confrontation and, you know, a whole bunch of things that go in these sort of complex projects. Um, We formed a a very good bond and I think good sort of healthy respect for each other and had sort of resolved um, at one point towards the end of my sort of tenure at Docklands, it, um, it would be good to do something together in the future. Um, and Ashley was a bit older than me, so he sort of went off and pursued that uh, a bit earlier than I was ready to um, and got into partnership with Ron Walker at the time and formed Evolve Development. Um, and then a couple of years after they'd sort of got started, I came on board um, and as a director and partner in that business and helped um, with the sort of acquisition um, velocity for that business of new projects and the like and um, and had a a really good experience there. Um, So I spent, you know, almost 10 years there um, and we developed um, a whole bunch of really good projects. So it was a pretty even mix between inner city apartment type projects, uh, all off the plan stuff, um, you know, which was a normal time. Um, projects varying in size between sort of 50 and 400 apartments, uh, and then some large scale, um, urban renewal, uh, those sort of, um, greenfields projects on the, on Melbourne's fridge, fridge. So, um, so that was a, a sort of land subdivision type projects and we had thousands of lots that we were, um, delivering, um, towards the end of my time there. And then, um, I had a sort of view on, um, where I sort of saw the industry heading and um, the sort of things that I wanted to pursue and, you know, at the time um, that didn't necessarily sort of suit where Ron and Ashley wanted to head at this stage in their careers and lives. So, um, so we resolved that over quite a long workout period that I um, that I was going to sort of move on and establish a new platform um, to um, separate from those guys to pursue Large-scale urban uh, renewal projects, um, and at that time, I wasn't thinking about build to rent. The sort of the origins of the sort of build to rent part of the business came later. Um, but projects where I could leverage some of the skills that I had in uh, managing sort of highly politicised and controversial planning processes, like, like rezoning middle ring industrial land for alternate use. Um, and then also some of the sort of capital relationships that I had for people that were interested in investing in that sort of longer term um, with that sort of longer term approach to sort of value creation over time and me also recognising that at the time there was a lot of offshore capital coming into off-the-plan projects and the like and the metrics that those businesses were using to evaluate development opportunity were different to the sort of metrics that that I would use and that basically bottom line of that meant that I was uncompetitive in um, competing with them in the acquisition of more sort of ready to go, ready to develop sites. Um, So I sort of had to move further up the sort of planning risk curve and other things and so well I'll take on some risk that I'm comfortable to manage to build a bigger portfolio over time and I don't need to sort of be the sort of megalomaniac that needs to have sort of 10 cranes up in the first year of operation. We'll take a a sort of more patient approach to development um, and ultimately end up with a large portfolio of projects. Um, But we'll do that in a a sort of orderly way and and sort of add value by uh, some of the skills that are probably unique to myself and the the business. Uh,
1: So, yeah, so that was sort
0: of the journey and it's um, been terrific, actually. It's, i uh am sort of the envy of some of my friends in the fact that I love to get out of bed and go to work. Um, so um, whereas some of the others are uh, you know, I've still sort of got friends that, that sort of maybe struggle a bit more with that. So um you know, my wife has to convince me to go on holidays each year and the like. So um so yeah, it's good fun.
1: And so what projects did you start out with and what have you delivered any, what ones have been completed?
0: Uh, yeah, so we delivered a, um, a very small project uh, in the context of sort of what we do now. So, um, so done a small townhouse project in, um, you know, under the new umbrella in South Yarra, which was sort of 25, $30 million worth of townhouses. Um, that was all sort of a very conventional off the plan type model. Um, and that was probably the project that um, sort of got me worried to start with, uh, that um, that I wasn't sure how I was going to sort of continue to sort of do development in the traditional way um, based on the basis that we were selling these townhouses to sort of investors and sort of whoever would really turn up and pay a 10% deposit, I guess, like the, the conventional the conventional sort of off-the-plan model, um, and I really sort of checked out of that, that process and um, it sort of lost interest and drive to participate in, in that format of a sales process, which is basically, you know, sort of selling something to someone off the plan and getting them to sign a contract and in, in most instances never really seeing them again until they turn up at your solicitor's office and provide you a bigger check at, at settlement time and, and then you sort of move on to the next project and, you know, probably don't really sort of stay in touch and that sort of, you know, that sort of soulless and sort of faceless sort of developer approach um, was something that sort of was bothering me a little bit. Um, And the thing that was sort of heightening my sort of anxiety um, in that regard was we had been off and acquired a very large pipeline of projects. Um, So we bought 11 acres of industrial land in the inner southeast in, in Melbourne that was ultimately going to be a project comprising probably 1,000-plus dwellings and forty or 50,000 square metres of commercial and retail spaces, another one in Clayton, um, you know, about two-thirds as big as the first one. and um, So we sort of built up all this pipeline and sort of said to yourself, well, if you've sort of checked out of the traditional mechanism to get those projects delivered, um, you know, what are some other opportunities to be able to build out that pipeline You know, safe from just being able to have to sort of sell the site and let someone else go and do it by an off-the-plan method. So, so that sort of led to a bit of a a research piece, I guess, and a bit of a sort of exploration internationally, and spent a lot of time overseas looking at uh, what are some of the other methods that um, international developers and investors use to deliver housing, and on what basis do they sort of hold that housing long term? Um, how do they they sort of engage with the communities and the neighbourhoods that they're building um, during the phase that sort of people are living there? Um, You know, how does all that sort of look and feel? So, um, and just sort of trying to say, well, if we can find a way to sort of hold more of our real estate longer term, then for me with an investment logic of not being particularly interested in development profit uh, type outcomes. So, you know, I'm less interested in, building three or four hundred apartments each year and settling those and having large profit events and much more focused on for my group um, and our capital partners of creating long-term annuity-based real estate assets, so stuff where we can generate rentals from and uh, have less spiky um, development profit-type revenues that are more exposed to uh, market cycles. Um, to have a more defensive portfolio and more linked to rental either in residential or um, commercial office and the like. So um, so clearly built to rent or multifamily housing uh, to use a sort of US descriptor um, was an obvious opportunity for us. Um, you know, at the time, you know, there was sort of others looking at it and a lot of sort of people sort of complaining about the barriers that existed, um, you know, in our sort of state or federal taxation systems, you um, planning barriers and the like, but um, we've sort of done a bunch of work on it and and sort of thought we'd been able to sort of solve for some of those barriers, Uh, thought we had models that delivered returns that were sufficient to attract institutional investment partners to our projects Um, because the reality is that now we've got a portfolio of almost 4,000 apartments in Melbourne across 10 sites is you – need large tranches of capital to be able to hold that volume of housing um so uh, the only spot where that gets housed internationally and the only spot that built to rent will be housed you know domestically as the as the asset class emerges in australia um will be with pension fund um, investment partners so superannuation investors so um so yeah so that's um, I guess that's the sort of long answer to the sort of career journey so far and, and some of the sort of observations and, and things we've sort of made along the way. Um, but yeah, it's
1: all right it's, got fun. Um, lots of questions for you. Yeah. Uh, the first one, so if you're not do, uh, doing projects for development profit, what is the financial goal? Is it? The cash flow uh, returns over time, yeah, yield over time.
0: Yeah, so we're sort of very much a, a sort of yield investor. Um, so so we make, you know, normally developers measure their sort of returns on a profit on cost or a, um, equity IRR or those sort of type of measures, traditional investment measures, which, which we use as well, you know, um, because we, we sort of, we need to be able to sort of compare ourselves to other housing development options. Um, but our investment thematic is much longer-term stable returns, um, more defensive returns that deliver lower annual returns than, say, an off-the-plan approach, um, but uh, in a sort of more defensive part of the market, so exposed to residential rents rather than um, having to source sort of investors and other purchases to basically buy the properties off the plan to... Um, to get your projects under development. So, um,
1: And what kind and of yield sure. are you looking to get, Chris?
0: Um, so we sort of, for our portfolio, which is pure sort of multifamily housing, so their assets will be owned in one line in perpetuity and will be only available for rental. Um, you know, we're sort of in the 6 to 8% range. Um, and for um, the projects that we sell down after five years, so that supported pathway to ownership model, um, you know, we're probably 4 to 5% above that on an annualised return. So so they're, you know, materially different equity returns to what you would see in, you know, an off-the-plan project where they might be targeting returns that are sort of three or four times that amount, but being an investment for eight to 10, 12 years compared to three or four years um, is the sort of big difference there, I think, so, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think you've delivered one project, which is build to rent, is that right?
0: Yeah, it's under construction at the moment. So, that's a, we sort of call it build to rent to own. So, we own the asset in one line for five years, Um, so single ownership for five years. Uh, And then we uh, allow the tenants, um, we give them an option and we sort of agree the price for that. Apartment upfront to purchase their property in the sixth year. So, um, and we commit to them the basically the point where you would sign off the plan contract. So, um, we pre-agree what their rent will be for the five years they're renting off us, and we pre-agree the purchase price that they can purchase the property for at the end of that five-year period. Um, and that provides them with a, a sort of a lot of certainty in what their sort of cost of housing is going to be during the rental phase, and also. Gives them a sort of fixed goal to work towards um, in terms of the purchase price, because our and it gives them basically seven years, so they two years while we're building the building, and then just about generally what those sort of buildings take to deliver, and then a five-year lease to save up towards a deposit. So we did a lot of research on that and saying what do people find as some of the most daunting things about the housing market? And the renting bit's easy; people are used to renting. Um, so as long as that was sort of done in a in a similar way to the way that you can sort of rent any other property in in Australia, then, then people are pretty used to that. Uh, the concept of getting the right to a sort of five year lease term was, was something new for people, and for some people that was that was sort of almost enough in itself. So to know that they were going to be able, so as long as they kept paying their rent, stay for five years and not be exposed to some sort of mum and dad investor that owns the investment property they're living at the moment who might sell it because they need a bit of money or Move the kids into it because the kids are going to be going to uni now or whatever it is, and kick out the tenant Um, was was a pretty big thing for people to say. We've got half a decade of tenure certainty there, Um, and the other thing about the ownership piece that a lot of people are telling us was being exposed to market volatility, and you know historically the the sort of way in which um, they just sort of continued to have this deterioration in their confidence around their ability to ever achieve home ownership and the, the logic you sort of is there sort of, might be an individual who's doing a very good job of tapping away at savings and you know he might be sort of you know saved up a bit of a nest egg but maybe not quite enough for a deposit and then you pick up you know the Herald Sun and you know there's another article saying that Melbourne's house prices have gone up 5% for the quarter again and and they sort of have this sort of arms in the air moment as a someone who does want to be you know a homeowner at some point because they may have seen the amount of financial stability that's given their parents or you know um, you know and just that being something that's deeply ingrained in the Australian psyche, um, but they sort of have this arms in the air moment. So this market's not designed for me. And you know, I went to bid on a. One-bedroom apartment in Richmond, and you know, I got blown out of the water by three investors who are aggregating their sort of tenth investment property each, or whatever it is. So, so if we could provide someone with, say, you've got the right, but not the obligation, to purchase this property in seven years' time for a, a fixed amount, we'll pre-agree that, and giving them that fixed goal to work towards, um, and supporting them with our financial coaching program and some of the other um, free services that we provide them to sort of help them along the way, and. Um, for people that might not be as confident with numbers or may have never sort of thought about what a mortgage is or how to get a loan off the bank, that sort of thing, um, to just provide them with a bit of extra support um, made the whole experience um, much more accessible for them. So so the first project in Kensington, which I mentioned, so that's under construction as we speak, and the first residents for that were moving in sort of May, June next year. Um, so that's the first one. So that's, and that'll be delivered. We'll hold that for five years um, and the residents will sit there and um, have a good life with our, our sort of services and then they'll get the opportunity in the sixth year to decide whether or not they want to purchase their apartment. So,
1: And how does that... Sorry to interrupt, Chris. How does the ownership structure then work? Because you mentioned that it's all owned in one line, but what happens in that six year when you start to sell down? How do you separate out those so, units? So we
0: strata, strata title that, um, the building. So um, so the, and we may, um, we'll strata title some of it as soon as it's finished, um, but the ownership of each of the individual parts of the building will be by the original um developer
1: so okay and then what happens i mean you'll start to get a fragmentation of ownership over time when you're in those buildings as people start to take ownership and then the original entity will still have some stock what 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 do you foresee happening over time
0: so we're pretty upfront about that so so the apartments will be all individually titled Um, and say three quarters of the people say, yeah, I've had a really good time living in this building. I'll sort of like my neighbours and, um, I've sort of saved up enough deposit to buy my home. Um, so three quarters of them will do that. And then the the residue, um, that just for whatever reason, you know, just some people, um, just won't be in a position or will decide that, um, they don't want to purchase the apartment anymore. We'll just dispose of the residue in an orderly way on market. You know, every year or two, post that five-year point, so so we'll we'll never be. We're either owning the entire project, uh, or we're out of it. So, and in the instance where we've sold down three quarters of the homes to, you know, the the tenants that had been living there, um, the other twenty-five percent will just uh, be appointing an agent and we'll have moved the tenant out and we'll be um, disposing of that stock on market during that sixth year after completion.
1: Okay, so it's a more, you're sort of looking at a seven to what, seven to ten year investment cycle?
0: Yeah, depending on how much um, residual stock we've got after the, the tenants either exercise their option to purchase or not and, um, you know, and then obviously how long it takes us to get through that residual stock. Um, So whatever the market conditions are like at the time.
1: Yeah, and so how many apartments was that project?
0: That one's only little. That's only seventy-three. And then we've got so that's sub-scale for us. Um, It's so we we won't do another project uh, that small. But when you're doing something new, Mm. uh, it was a manageable scale. So that was a you know if I'd have gone into ANZ and said oh, we're going to sort of do something that's never been done before and we're going to do 400 apartments in the first project and we need 200 million and et cetera, et cetera. You know, they just sort just of gone into meltdown, so just <laughs> having, the, having the conversation. So, And it was for me, you know, sort of I bought this site at auction for this 73 apartments and for, so, well, you know, at least, you know, that's uh, a, a sort of manageable scale to do something else with. Um, if if we need to, but anyway, that's all sort of history now and it has been successful and the market's responded really positively to it and um, the new projects that we've got on the books, uh, none of those are really less than 170 to 200 apartments. Uh, um, So to deliver the service during the the tenancy phase, our build-to-rent sort of service offer, um, you need to be at a certain scale to make that economic because the, the sort of on-site human resource piece that we need to manage 200 apartments is basically comparable to managing 75 apartments. So it's it's not a sort of linear increase to your resource needs as you increase the scale of your projects. Um, And then we get into our sort of mega neighbourhoods, which is a lot of Bentley where we'll sort of do a thousand apartments across 10 buildings and a whole bunch of commercial spaces and hospitality spaces and the like. And, um, and that's sort the next scale again. So for so those projects, we'll do sort of 20% of the housing will be under the um, rent-to-own model, the home ownership pathway, and about 80% of it will just be owned for long-term affordable rental.
1: Okay. So how many pro- uh, future projects have you got in the pipeline?
0: Uh, so we've got about uh, 10 locations in Melbourne, about 4,000 apartments in total. So... Um, um, so that's, you know, we're sort of everywhere from Kensington, Brunswick, Coburg, Preston, Murrumbina, um, Clayton, Bentley, Port Melbourne. So so we're sort of all around, all around the place um, and that's in, in the middle ring. Um, so I think the sort of the location sort of people ask us where we sort of like to be and, you know, can I go and do a project in Pakenham and, you know, because it's next to a train station, I sort of say, well, no, because... In a growth area, you can still rent a three-bedroom family home for probably $450 a week. So the, the economics of a commercially built multi-level apartment building um, it just can't adapt to that market setting. So you know, why would someone pay us $380 a week for a one-bedroom apartment when they can go and rent a three-bedroom home for $450? You just wouldn't. So um, so we'd be, we're sort of usually located in areas where you would see conventional off the plan apartment developments um, getting underway so'll be the probably the easiest way to summarize the locations that we're moving into but um, we're pulling back on the sort of acquisition um, on, the, on the sort of the acquisition velocity now so we've got a huge pipeline and we're now really resourcing up the business into a sort of delivery phase so i have got 30 something staff at the moment and we'll probably have 70 to 80 by this time next year. Um, so so that's good news and that's a i guess that's a that's a, a pretty engaged environment for our sort of staff to be in as well to see that sort of constant growth um, which is which is good so so yeah so we um so our projects now range in scale between about 200 apartments up to you know sort of 1000 apartments across multiple buildings on a large urban renewal site
1: and so it sounds like a part of the business is the project management... Sorry, the property management side as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, that's that's a big part of the team.
1: Okay. Uh, you mentioned that it can be a difficult process getting something like this through. Is it, is it different going through planning with a different kind of model? Are there different uh, planning considerations?
0: Look, there are. So, I think... Um, you know, I think sort of local and state government, in particular sort of, are getting up the speed with you know what's different around built to rent housing compared to conventional off the plan projects, which they're so um, sort of accustomed to. Um, one of the things that I've, I've found sort of you know sort of positive in the in the planning space has been to the extent you're pitching your projects at the sort of more affordable end of the rental market or the sort of purchase market than um, the planning authorities generally respond in a, a fairly positive way to that. So um, so we've had very good experience dealing with the city of Melbourne and city of Moreland and some of the other local governments that decide planning applications in, in Melbourne um, with our projects. Um, and I, I don't think we end up with a, a sort of bigger building than you would if, if you were just doing off the plan so we don't sort of get an extra floor or something because we're doing 70% affordable housing. But we do, um, I think we, we sort of, just the sort of style and the sort of nature of the conversation in planning is just, you know, you're sort of starting from a different point than, you know, because everyone's just got this sort of negative bias against anyone doing an off-the-plan apartment project that, you know, it's just capitalism at its worst and, you know, whatever, which is not always the case. But, um, And I've, you know, over the years sort of found that sort of bit bit of a frustration in the planning system where, um, you know, it's – no, it's just hard. So, But we've found it probably a bit easier, I guess, is the summary. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Well, let's not uh, diverge on a planning discussion and all the frustrations involved with doing that. <laughs> uh, I'll be here all day on my soapbox. Yeah. Um, you mentioned something about the tax and planning barriers. W- what were some of those that you identified and how did you overcome them?
0: Um. I guess, so from a taxation perspective, some of the barriers to institutionally owned rental accommodation are the ones that you know, we often see referenced. So um, GST structure, you know, at a federal level, so you know, the Fed tax regime around GST is a, is a barrier um, to the establishment of the asset class, but at uh, a state level, um, land tax uh, is, is a big cost, a big annual cost to build to rent developers. So, but you know, I've got a bit of a you know, sort of philosophy around this and I'm a bit, sort of, bit at odds with property counts and other sort of industry advocacy groups on this to saying, well, my research internationally and my view is that it would be very foolish for government at any level to start giving away tax or giving tax incentives to a certain asset class without having that asset class at least attempt to solve for some of the issues the government's facing. So internationally there's a lot of tax concession for basically pension fund-owned housing assets, but it's always targeted and there's always something that sort of government's getting back in return for that and typically it's in the form of um, some sort of discounted rental accommodation or rent ac- rental accommodation that's appropriate for very low, low and middle income clients, tenants... Um, So my sort of view on that is that, um, you know, if if the federal government's going to talk about sort of giving away GST for commercial residential premises and states going to give, you know, sort of give land tax concession for build to rent, for example, then um, I think they need to be pushing industry to be sort of solving for some of the other issues that that government's got in the delivery of those projects. Um, You know, so we've got some, you know, Tax structuring and other things that, w- that we use to be efficient, but the reality is you're still sort of paying it, um, paying the tax in, in, in a way that um, basically means that at some level, you know, the, the sort of tenants and the purchasers need to um, uh, help you deal with that burden. So, um, and then from a planning perspective, look, I think the, the issue is, and you sort of talk to some of the international operators in. multi-family housing and you know it's all about sort of smaller apartments and and the like and again I sort of you know maybe a bit too far left for um, you know some of my sort of capitalist colleagues but I sort of I'm still not convinced that you know the reality is you can charge the same rent for a 42 square metre one bedroom apartment as you can for a 50 square metre one bedroom apartment roughly. You know, it's not materially different. So so clearly if you're building something smaller and it's costing less and, and the rent's basically the same, then the yield's better. But then we've got these design standards for apartments in Victoria that set out a sort of minimum bedroom dimensions, living room dimensions, minimum amount of storage, etc. So, So the argument that a lot of operators are using are because we're providing a much higher level of communal amenity spaces that – that means your apartment doesn't necessarily need to be as big. So I'm not sure that I necessarily subscribe to that. I don't know that just because you can't afford to buy a property that you should be subjected to a sort of lower level of amenity in your, your living environment. So, um, you know, and that's sort of arguing against myself commercially a little bit, I suppose. So if they, if they didn't loosen up those restrictions, then that would probably be, be, be good for us. Um, and then, um, so I guess they're sort of... Um, you know, the sort of extension of that is, is does government ever sort of really get its head around sort of discriminating, discriminating against the renter compared to the sort of owner? And I suspect that the answer to that question is no. And the you know, an apartment, a one-bedroom apartment should be what they've sort of determined is, 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 is a one-bedroom apartment, whether you're sort of renting it or owning it or whatever. So I don't suspect we'll see a great deal of change there. What government could do, um, you know, and clearly with the uh, recovery task force and things they're, they're sort of in the current crisis, is provide a higher level of sort of facilitation to build to rent projects, for example, that are not subject to the normal pre sales hurdles and the like that a, an off the plan project would be, um, particularly at the moment when, you know, off the plan selling, you know, is difficult. So to say, if there's projects there that are subject to the normal sort of constraints to commencement that other um, parts of the market are, um, and there's the ability there to get on and allow these developers to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in construction of these projects, and not to sit around for you know, eight months or two years trying to pre-sell all the apartments before that can occur. Um, then I think it makes sense for government to give some sort of facilitated approvals to those type of projects, um, which is something that I know they are. Sort of very focused
1: on at the moment. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask a question around that. So, particularly with your construction funding, you generally, with a mainstream funder, they'd be looking for you know, some high percentage of pre-sales to to satisfy their risk or to de-risk the project. How do they How do they look at this from a funding proposition and a risk proposition, or do you get Uh, rental agreements in place? Is that you're sort of pre-sale?
0: Yeah, so under the first scenario, which is where we give people the five-year lease and then they can purchase their apartment, um, we like to give people the maximum time to start saving towards the deposit. So in that instance, we pre-agree by an agreement for lease and basically an off-the-plan contract that how much rent they have to pay during the rental phase and how much they can buy their property for. Uh, in that instance, um, our banks like us to have about 70% of the apartments pre-committed to people that are sort of going on that journey with us. Um, and it's not really a good, you know, it's not really about a security position for them because, you know, in reality, you know, we're just holding a rental bond. So someone that's sort of potentially more easy for someone to walk away from than a, a 10% deposit. Um Anyone moving into the building can leave after the first 12 months anyway or two years or or whatever. So, yeah, in our circumstance, it's not really about um, the security position. It was more about, particularly for the first project, demonstrating that there was demand in the market for um, this new concept. Um, For the build to rent, um, it's all about serviceability on stabilisation. So what's the net income from the asset? So, the banks have been pretty sensible in accepting that there's going to be demand for high-quality rental accommodation um, in Melbourne, medium to long term. So they're not nervous about being able to rent the apartments out as long as the you know the rents you're forecasting are not crazy. So they're really sizing their debt based off what's the of net income from the asset. So after you've collected all your monthly rent and paid all your costs, how much of is are available to service the bank loan, um, and then they'll size the debt that they make available to you based on that metric pretty much solely in our experience. So the traditional loan-to-value ratios and loan-to-costs and things are um, are less relevant. So the big question for um, built to rent still is where does – and we need transactions to demonstrate it – but where does the market realistically get set in terms of a capitalisation rate in the secondary market? So – when the original developer actually wants to go and sell the asset five or six years after completion, Um, whereas like a Chadston shopping centre might trade at a 3% yield. Do investors want to buy whole residential assets at, you know, building a 300 in it, Does that trade at the same as Chadston or is it 4% or is it tighter? So, um, and all we can point to is international examples, but it's, so geo specific, you know, like you look at a yield that uh you know, if you look at North America's the uh, best example, like if you look at a yield on a multifamily asset in Dallas compared to New York, you know, there might be a um, you know it might be half. So, you know, it might be sort of three and a half to four percent in New York and might be seven to eight in, percent in Dallas, for example. So so pointing to, you know, so everyone sort of points to New York and says, well, multifamily assets trade at very tight yields in, in New York. We say, well, is Melbourne New York? No, it's not. So um, is Melbourne still a strong market because historically we've had strong population growth and, you know, out in the back of this crisis, that's forecast to continue. Um, so, you know, will there be good appetite for this? Australia with the fourth largest pension fund market in the world, got institutional investment capital domestically that would be interested in long-term sort of long and low type investments um, like housing, the answer to that is probably yes, uh, but the reality is, um, is sort of the establishment of forward value on these assets is still a bit of a throw at a dartboard, to be honest.
1: So, Chris, you mentioned that you quite enjoyed the, the difficult process or going through a, a difficult planning phase or those early discussions around new projects. Particularly down at Docklands, why do you think you enjoy it? Why do you think you're good at that?
0: Uh, well, whether I'm good at it or not, I'll let someone else be the judge. But the reason I enjoy it is it's sort of it's it's like this sort of engineer's mindset. Like you know, I sort of talk to people about this often. It's engineers love a problem to solve, you know. So that's whatever that problem is. So, um, so the Ability to sort of be innovative in the creation of solutions for highly complex planning processes or commercial structures or um, all those sort of type of things is is something that have always sort of been um, deeply sort of engaged with. Um, And strategic planning processes and properties that are just exposed to multi-stakeholders, be they community members or politicians or whatever else is, um, you can create a lot of value for your organisation there um, or you can also sort of erode a lot of value. So um, I've just found that as a a sort of super fascinating space and a space that I've always found um, where sort of an honest approach prevails. Mm -hmm. So if you're sort of upfront about your intentions and your sort of desires for a project in a a new neighbourhood or community, Um, And you sort of stick to your guns and you've got some well-constructed sort of logic around that as to why it's not only good for you, but it's good for the future residents and hopefully good for, say, existing residents in a location that you can get through those processes in a very sort of orderly way. Um, But the reality is that they're they're sort of ultra-long duration processes. And for me, um, it created an opportunity for me to create a sort of large pipeline of projects off a Sort of more limited capital base um, than you know, other listed groups, something like Mayhav, um, by leveraging some of those skills to create development and pipeline for ourselves over time, I guess. So, yeah. All
1: right. And you also mentioned that you were dealing with that, that big end of town and so those larger developers and you learned a lot from them. What, what was it that you'd say you learned from them that you've since applied or used in your future projects?
0: Uh, I think self-belief so there's there was a lot of self-confidence in that in some of those groups and uh, some of those individuals so um, and uh, that doesn't mean it wasn't sort of ego or arrogance it was it was just a sort of um, a sort of very high level of sort of conviction to where they were heading and where their organization was heading and where their projects were heading so um, and I found that you can sort of carry a lot of people and and, and, and sort of create a lot of sort of energy around what you're doing. If you can demonstrate that to people, that you deeply, deeply believe in what you're doing, is the right thing to be doing for whatever reason, be that for some commercial reason, some social reason, some environmental reason, some whatever. So that sort of soul, sort of non-distracted focus, that sort of laser focus has been something that I've always been um a sort of big advocate for as a a sort of an approach so uh, no fluff no nothing this is sort of this is what we're doing this is the direction that we're going to head in for you know it won't always be smooth but you know we'll get there in the end so and i found that those teams you know and the individuals running those sort of very large projects you know multi-hundred million billion dollar type projects um always had a extremely strong well-established vision what they were doing there that they very rarely wavered from.
1: And so what would you say your strong vision is then?
0: Uh, to build, um, you know, a large portfolio of social and affordable housing that um, provides a sort of deep social and environmental impact um, in this city and, and other cities nationally um, and whilst delivering sort of stable, defensive investment returns to our know, institutional capital partners so, um, and through that and through the sort of aggregate of all of those things um, providing long tenure housing for the Victorians that sort of need it most so if I look at it in May 2020 I say well perhaps um, it's never been more important for us to be looking after the sort of people or at least have sort of had it emerged as so say in a crisis or the people that looked after us as a community. so and I don't sort of feel like right at the moment today it's me as a sort of community sort of focused property developer, it's the sort of nurses and emergency services workers and everything else. and they're the people that we're sort of most focused on on housing, you know the true essential workers. So so that's the, that's the sort of vision is to provide fair housing options for as many Australians as possible. So, who find housing difficult, so.
1: Thank you. That has just (laughs) prompted me for the question I was going to ask you. (laughs) Um, And so, having said that, who is the, or how would you sort of describe the people that have uh, taken up lease options or lease to buy or rent to buy options in the project that you've got underway at the moment?
0: Uh, so it's a pretty mixed demographic. So we've got the the sort of, we sort of had a hypothesis going in and um, we thought that most people would be 20 to 40-year-old, aspiring homeowners, um, sort of young professionals, maybe some people with young children and the like. And on the whole, that was sort of proved to be correct. Um, so they're very engaged socially, very engaged environmentally. Uh, they're... Um, very well informed. Um, they understand property development, understanding what housing could be and should be, um, and uh, they're probably a bit frustrated with what the market's been delivering them. Um, so that was one group, and the, the, the group that emerged, um, which is obvious in hindsight, the sort of over 55, over 60 group with uh, a lot of single-person per- households coming out of that group who – were interested in living in a community where they felt like perhaps their neighbour had their back, um, or they could call on them for assistance um, for for whatever reason, um, but weren't ready to, you know, move into, you know, some other sort of form of accommodation. So the idea of having people that were in this building for the long haul and wanted to get to know their neighbours and engage with each other was um, something that was very appealing to um, sort of older demographic as well. So,
1: Interesting. Mm. Uh, and do you see you branching out into other states?
0: Yeah, so we're um, we're in due diligence on a site in Brisbane at the moment. Um, we'll announce a project in Sydney this year. So, um, so we're very, you know, there's some really good work around from Ahuri and some other organisations on investment pacing into different geographies at what, what rate. So we're sort of East Coast centric for the, for the obvious reasons. Um, and then I think opportunistically, but probably via a sort of partnership based approach, we may move into some other capital cities. Um, but we're also sort of very focused on having a sort of orderly growth. So to... Um, sort of stick to our knitting in Melbourne and establish a platform and do some things well and deliver some good neighbourhoods, good communities, um, and make sure that our residents are happy because, you know, that's they're really the sort of future of our brand is to have people that tell us they're having a better life in an assembled building than, you know, where they had been previously or their other option that they had around the corner. Um, so we need to make sure that we've got the business right and then we'll, we'll sort of look to expand um, over time. So, we're not in a rush to do so.
1: And when you were going through planning, did you find you were getting a lot of community resistance or objection despite the promise of a, a more community-focused building?
0: Yeah. So, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Your building's <laughs> always too tall and there's not enough car parking. <laughs> so, they got like... So it's like, you know, it's the ultimate. You know, I love what you're doing. I'm so supportive of the whole concept, but just not in my backyard. Mm-hmm. So, I'm like, because you know, you know, I don't want too many cars parked out the front of my house or, or whatever. So, anyway, so that was interesting. that like we had a lot of objections to the first project. So, um, you know, over 40, I think, which is for a relatively modest development pro- proposal. I thought that was that was quite a lot, given that we're sort of situated in a sort of remnant light industrial area as well with not many residential neighbours. Um, but to their credit, um, you know, the Future Melbourne Committee, which comprises all the council laws and the sort of mayor and the city of Melbourne, gave their unanimous support to our proposals. So, um, so, um, so, you know, but the city of Melbourne in particular is a very progressive um, part of local government, so... Um, So, yeah, so we don't – I don't even get any sort of favours from the the community. And I think, you know, that's probably fair enough. I think over time, you know, as we do more and more and we've got more and more of our sort of um, terrific um, little neighbourhoods sort of here there, and everywhere around Melbourne uh, um, and the brand sort of develops and, you know, gets sort of maybe a bit better known um, to the public, that that'll make it a bit easier. I think there's still the scepticism of – You know, yeah, sure. You're promising to do all this sort of great, sort of hyper-engaged, fairer housing, Um, but really, you know, we think you're just sort of a property developer, sort of masquerading as, um, you know, a sort of do-gooder or something. So, (laughs) so there's a bit of bit of natural skepticism, you know. I think, and that's probably some of that's fair enough. You know, there have been plenty of examples of developers probably promising incumbent communities the world, and maybe not always delivering on that promise, and there's probably been examples, too, where developers have sort of promised something and given communities more. but um, So, yeah, I think there's just that sort of inherent um, sort of mistrust of the industry, um, which you know, I think on the whole is pretty unfair, to be honest. I think most developers do, do a pretty good job. Uh so.
1: And I'm curious to know what the biggest challenge or obstacle or pickle that you've found yourself in that you've ever had to face in a development project and how you managed to work around it or get it solved.
0: Um, The biggest biggest challenge I've faced in a development project or the the sort of formation of a development business is um, how hard it's been to get this Assemble platform up and going. So and from a, a few respects, I think the fact that we're not sort of Mervac, uh, we're not a big sort of listed development group, for example, has meant I've had to, I've had to sort of forward load a lot of resource into the business. So, you know, I've had to have the operations team, you know, have the asset management team, have the community development programmers, have the service design team. And so, building up a lot of this sort of non-core development resource has been a very big challenge for us. Um, but, you know, it's never been insurmountable. It's just sort of taken longer and sort of cost more than, you know, I sort of ever ever thought it would. So, uh, and then to, I guess, convince, um, you know, a, a sort of group of very engaged future residents of your sort of bona fides has been, been a big challenge also, so... Um, And I think we've just overcome that by that sort of unwavering commitment to the organisation's sort of purpose to provide fairer housing options to Australians. So, you know, and I get a lot of people, and I say this quite often, that, you know, in the team that have helped get us through some of those challenges that work here and sort of believe in what we're doing and there wouldn't be a chance in hell they'd work at any sort of normal conventional developers business so and our offers a lot richer as a result of that so we've got a lot of people that add a lot of value um outside the traditional sort of development space to our sort of future resident experience and the like that uh, only work here because they believe that um what we're doing is going to be a sort of better housing option for a lot of australians in the future
1: well hopefully you managed to achieve that mm. but for other for developers that are sitting out there listening to you and thinking, you yeah, know, that all sounds great, I'd really like to get bigger and, and better, what, what would your advice be for how they can take their business to the next level?
0: Um, well, I don't know if big is better or not. Bigger, I think, allows you to, and a, we're sort of continuing to grow. It's sort of allowing us to do more and more and I guess sort of explore a lot more things, I guess, my um, my sort of main piece of advice to anyone would be I was very lucky to find a part of the development industry that I was super engaged in and, you know, the investigation and sort of delivery of more affordable and fairer housing options was, was the focus for me, um, you know, but I've got mates that deliver high-end, high-end residential, multi-million dollar apartments and that they're just as... Focused and engaged and happy to get out of bed to go and do that each day as I am to sort of do what I do so I think you need to find your sort of personal passion personal, personal passion within the industry and then everything will become easier so when you go and Have a discussion with capital or your banks or whoever it is around something that you can obviously be seen to be sort of deeply engaged and passionate about it just makes everything so much easier so, and if they ever, in my experience, if capital ever feel investors ever feel like it's just about the commercials, it's just about the profit, it's just about sort of you know, the capitalist elements, and there's no real sort of personal passion for the asset class or the market segment or whatever you're in, then um, it's significantly harder, so if not impossible. So, So, yeah, I guess the advice is to find what part of the industry you're truly passionate about and then focus on nothing else but that.
1: And so where do you look for inspiration or how do you work on always improving, Chris?
0: Uh, A fair bit of it's travel. So I try to go to – well, I don't try to. Um, I've obviously had to cancel my trips this year. Um, But every year for the past five or six years I've done – north america and europe um looking at um basically multifamily. so the, the lessons have been so the asset class lessons uh, and the investment lessons in built to housing have really come from north america the approach to community uh and a, and a sort of more sort of wholesome sort of organic non-embellished life has really come from europe so um so i've spent just a lot of time researching and staying in and sort of observing and um, how it's done internationally. So, um, and then tried to apply those learnings to the Melbourne context, which has got its own nuances as well. So so that's, that's been the sort of key piece and then having extremely sort of talented advisors assisting, I think it's the other big sort of piece of the puzzle
1: uh, what kind of advisors is, are you referring oh, to, Chris?
0: All the boring ones, tax, law, yeah. you know, <laughs> the, the, the not, not boring ones, the, you know, architects, um, you know, those, those type of the key advisors. Uh, the, the sort of having, when you're talking about developing large tranches of rental housing, built to rent housing, having the best advisors in tax and um, finance and the law and everything else is is just a given um, because, you know, the amounts of money that you're talking about to sort of hold these assets are, are so large. Um, and then I think the commitment to sort of architectural sort of design quality and build quality and the likes, um, the, sort of the focus is different. So when you're selling someone to something off the plan, um, you know, basically they're taking the baton that project from the day it's completed, and you know, if it's sort of cold in winter and warm in summer, it's sort of more the purchaser's problem or the, the sort of person who's renting it off that mummy, that investor's problem, where our focus on design quality and build quality um, is sort of unwavering. Um, and that's just, you know, it's not just, it's, it's sort of a bit to do with the result that we've got to hold these assets ultra long term. And I'm not saying that all of the plan developers. You know, deliver quality so products. I don't need to worry about it. Like look, most developers, do a very good job. So, um, but um, it's just a, I guess, just a different approach. you are saying we want to own this thing for ten or twenty years, and we want it to look better in five or ten years after it's finished than um, the day it was finished. So, yeah. So, I think using high quality sort of designers and builders and the like um, is just sort of good way to. Achieve that outcome.
1: Very good. Well, if people are interested in finding out more about your projects or about you, Chris, or the business, where should they head?
0: Um, so I guess the about the projects and um, the business, assemblecommunities dot com is probably the, the easiest spot to start. And if anyone wants to learn more about me, when all this is over and back to normal, pop into the office in Richmond and. I'm hanging around most days,
1: so we can just have a chat. Yeah, I think we're all looking forward to getting back and actually being able to meet people face to face, but... Yeah. It's been great talking with you, Chris. Really appreciate the time, and it sounds like you're on a really interesting journey and up to some really fantastic things with your project, and I wish you all the best. I hope they come together for you and, more importantly, for the people that are going to live there in the future.
0: Yeah, exactly. Thanks, Justin. It's been great.
1: All right. Thanks, Chris. See you later. Cheers. Bye. Okay. There you go. What an interesting journey Chris is on. I admire how Chris is trying to do something different and offering people an alternative path into home ownership. I like it. Here are a couple of other things I took out of my chat with Chris. One, don't be afraid to pursue a different path. I enjoyed how Chris wasn't feeling fulfilled by the standard developing model and wanted to find a deeper connection with his projects and buyers. So he changed course and pursued a different option. So, are you feeling fulfilled with the model you are implementing? Could you find a different developing challenge to excite you? Two, how can you make life better for your future buyers? Further to Chris's efforts to generate a deeper engagement with buyers, he's explored ways of helping people attain home ownership, looked at how to create communities within projects, and make life a little better for the people who live in the buildings. Perhaps there are some additional ways you could improve your projects to make life a little better for the final residents. Three, can you develop a business model that scales? Chris is trying to create a model that will scale so that he can create more places for people to live in and one day own. Scaling in the property development game always brings challenges, but that's why we do it, right? So are there ways you can scale what you are doing in an orderly way while improving how you do it? Alright, if you enjoyed that chat with Chris, then you might want to go back and have a listen to my chat with developers Olivia Christie and Sonia Miller, who are running a business that provides consulting services to institutional developers, but they are also in the process of delivering their own development project of a luxury apartment block. They had this advice about making decisions. Sometimes you, you'll always look for the reason why something's not right and why things are being and that, that stifles decision making. So don't don't let those sort of negative things. You've just got to be very measured and, and look at things on balance and make an informed decision. If you try to look at all the negatives and you procrastinate over things then that's just as bad as not making, you know, not making decisions, making a bad decision. So as you say just make a, make a decision, look, consider all the information and make a, a clear decision. There's lots of great ideas and tips in that conversation, so go back to episode 57 and take a listen. Okay, don't forget to contact me if you want to find out more about the Property Developing Mentoring Program. Email justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com. And you can catch my site demolition update video on Facebook and Insta at Property Developer Podcast. Plus, lots of other news, views, and fun things. Remember, you can always drop a comment on iTunes if you're enjoying the show. And until next time, may you come up with a bold idea to change the world. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit